Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. This is the word of God. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Please pray with me. Our Father, uh, we come to your word. We're so thankful for it. Uh, we come to uh, what is in many ways a very painful passage to read and consider, very uncomfortable. But this is your word and you have purpose for us this morning. It is a great purpose, a sovereign purpose. And I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak directly to our hearts this morning and you would have your way in us. That I, the preacher, would not be a distraction, but would illuminate your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. If you've ever been to a museum with ancient artifacts, you may have looked at a beautiful vase uh, from centuries past with uh, artistic detail. You've noticed, though, as as the closer you get to the vase, the more you start to see the cracks, the imperfections. It's the same with God's people. Uh, Some may be more impressive to us than others, but without exception, the closer you look at their lives, you start seeing imperfections. And today, this exemplary character we've been studying, David, the shepherd king, we see some very ugly behavior, a darkness in heart and action that's almost unbelievable. But the Bible's transparent, isn't it, about the failings of even the best of God's people. Noah, Abraham, Lot, Aaron, Miriam, Peter, the apostles, they're all portrayed as they are, as mixed packages. And today, we see that King David, the man after God's own heart, is a mixed package as well. And before we dig in, I just want to consider This is what makes Jesus unique, okay? Unlike with a beautiful vase in a museum, the closer you look at Jesus, the more impressive he becomes. Unlike everyone else in Scripture, the more exhaustively you examine his words and actions, the more beautiful he's shown to be. There is none like him. So today, this otherwise great king is shown to be a sinner in the most horrific way. And this is a tragedy on many levels, but nevertheless, there are some key life-altering redemptive truths for us this morning. You can follow along, as Reed mentioned, in your outline in your bulletin. I would encourage you to do that as we see that David's sinful tragedies take place between the bookends of the Ammonite War. I'm just going to summarize. This is number one in your outline, the context. I'm just going to summarize chapter 10 this way. David shows kindness to this new king of Ammon because his father, the previous king, had just died. And David apparently had made a covenant with that king, the, the man's father. So he sends some servants to 
to comfort him. Well, David's kindness is met with hostility as this new king humiliates David's servants. And that was a pretty significant tactical error on the part of the Ammonite king because David sends Joab, his general, and the entire army to defeat them. But meanwhile, David stays at home in his palace. Number two in your outline. Please read with me in your Bibles. If you don't have one, as Reed said, I encourage you to follow along in the one underneath the seat. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Please follow along as I start reading in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happens late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Idle hands, as they say, are the devil's workshop. David is idle. Joab, his general's at war on David's behalf, while he's taking naps and walking on his roof. And he sees this beautiful woman, woman bathing. Several women in Scripture are described as beautiful. Only Bathsheba is described as very beautiful. And David asks about her, who she is, and he's told she's the wife of Uriah, who we find out later in chapter 23 is listed as one of David's best soldiers. Eliam, Bathsheba's father, is also listed there as one of David's finest. And Eliam's father was Ahithophel, who is described as one of David's wisest counselors. So David knew this family well and was blessed greatly by these men, which just makes what David does here all the more heinous. As reflected in the ESV, the answer given to David in the Hebrew is framed as a question. Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? As one commentator notes, even in the answer to this initial question about her identity, there's an implicit warning to David's conscience. Like, you know who she is, don't you? She's the wife and daughter of two of your best soldiers and the granddaughter of your wisest counselor. Nevertheless, David runs through the stop sign and sends for her to take her. So Bathsheba is taken. She comes to the palace and he slept with her and she went home. A very terse description of his adultery. David got what he wanted and sent her home. Now the author mentions that she was in the time of purification from her monthly cycle so that there is absolute certainty that her pregnancy is a result of David's adultery with her. Now, this is really important, and we're going to come back to this in the application. We see throughout the narrative the author puts all of the blame on David. We need to be really careful not to assume things that are not there in the text. There's an impulse, I think, because of how lovable and admirable David is to make excuses for him, most notably... I've seen unfortunate things written or spoken about Bathsheba. 
for which there is not a shred of evidence in the text. For instance, what's she doing bathing on a roof for everyone to see her? She knows where she is. How seductive. Well, first of all, nowhere does it say she's on a roof. It says David was on the roof of his palace, the highest structure in the area, with a bird's eye view down into living spaces, courtyards, public areas all around. She may have been on a roof, and that would have been normal, but she may have been in a more common area near a water source. And she may have been using a bowl to wash herself. And she may have had some clothing on as well. The point is there's no evidence she's positioning herself strategically to be seen by him. Secondly, Scripture never shies away from describing seduction when it happens. We see this clearly in the story of Joseph, don't we, with Potiphar's wife, tried to seduce him. Nothing like that here. She's not putting on a show. She's obeying the law of Moses, performing purification rites with this bath. The most important thing to keep in mind, however, is the power dynamic. And we don't have an analogy for this in our American culture. This is the king of Israel with basically unilateral power and a woman with no power. Remember in chapter 1, Alan Kember's message, when the Amalekite messenger came to David with the news about Saul and Jonathan's death on Mount Gilboa, David commanded the messenger be put to death. When he gave that command, the Amalekite was not put on trial to be sentenced by a jury of his peers. He was executed immediately. This is the king. Remember back in the first message in our series, King Saul was looking for someone to play the lyre, the harp. He sent word to Jesse for David to come into his service. Remember that? And Jesse said, you know, Saul, actually we're good. I'm going to keep David with my sheep, but thanks for asking. No, that's not the way it works with the king. Jesse not only sent David, but sent with him choice wine and bread and other gifts. So in this case, David's sending for Bathsheba. It's not like they were texting each other or messaging on Facebook and one thing led to another. That's not what's happening here. This is the king sending for her. Now, we don't want to overplay the the power dynamic either, but my point is we're not giving many details. So what we know is what we're told by the author throughout the story, and that is that David, not Bathsheba, is blamed. So she returns home after his one-night stand, and David probably thinks the whole thing is over. But when she discovers she's pregnant with David's child nearly a month later or so, she sends word to David, and just like something out of a modern-day news story about some politician getting caught, David tries his best at a cover-up. This is number three in your outline. Let's read together in verse six. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Many scholars believe washing your feet is a euphemism for sleeping with one's wife, and that's clearly how Uriah understood it, as we'll see. But David's obviously trying to create a situation where it would be believable that Uriah is the father when the child is born. Continuing in verse 8. 
And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of, the Lord, of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Let's just pause there. As they say, the irony is so thick you can cut it with a knife. You have a non-Israelite in Uriah who's embraced the covenant promises as an outsider, now grafted in, as it were, so humbled and grateful to be fighting for the Lord and his king. The ark, the presence of God, dwells in a tent. There are men, my brothers in arms, fighting as we speak for God, for king, camping in open field. How could I possibly be so self-centered to just forget all that, eat and drink and be with my wife? How insensitive would that be? Not to mention, it's an act of uncleanness to do so during times of battle. We see elsewhere, Israelite soldiers were to abstain from sexual relations during war. You trying to test me? I don't know who you think I am. I am your servant warrior for you, for king, for the Lord. Far be it from me to forget that. Contrast Uriah to the covenant king of Israel who has received special promises from God himself regarding his descendants and his own cherished role in the kingdom of God, breaking the Lord's commands one after another. And it just gets worse. David thinks, maybe if I can get him drunk, he'll sleep with his wife. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his own house. So David tries to get Uriah intoxicated, so maybe he'll violate his impeccable conscience then. Doesn't work. As one commentator says, Uriah has so internalized the Mosaic Covenant that even excess drink did not confuse his morality. Another says this, listen. Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. David thought this would be easier. But listen to this irony. David underestimated the covenant loyalty and unselfish devotion that this Hittite would have to his own God. The God with whom David seems increasingly distant. That's what sin does, doesn't it? It ruins our communion with God. Now part two of the cover-up, number four. Let's read in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Unbelievable. In the letter he writes, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may struck down and die. 
One unrepentant sin deceives and compounds on another as he sends Uriah carrying his own death warrant. Verse 16. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David uh, among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Let's just be really clear. David murdered Uriah. He took his wife. Now he takes his life. Verse 18. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. He instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, let me, let me just, I didn't, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Joab alters the instructions a little bit. He has to. It would have been too obvious to tell all the soldiers to pull back and let this guy die. So basically, more soldiers have to die to pull this off. More collateral damage. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, if the king's anger arises, verse 21, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the king gets his wish, Uriah is dead. Verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us. And came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. This is chilling. Not only did he abuse his power to murder someone to cover up his own wickedness. Look at his encouragement to Joab. In verse 25, he basically perverts theology. He knows exactly why Uriah and these men are dead. But he waxes eloquent about how life works. The, The sword devours now one and now another. This is sick. Consider this. From the same brilliant mind that came so many beautiful, eloquent truths about God, about life in the Psalms. When controlled by sin, that same mind devises eloquent nonsense, perverted babble. May the Lord have mercy. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard, did you see that? The authors already told us her name. But let's be very clear, reader. This is the wife of Uriah. Even though he's now dead, this is the wife of Uriah. When she heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I think that ES, uh, the, the, NASB, CSB, other translations render this as less of an understatement here when they say the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the same word used throughout Kings and Chronicles when the author summarizes the reign of a particular king with that familiar refrain, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's David now. David tells Joab, don't let this matter displease you. Because from David's perspective, it wasn't displeasing. 
But let us never forget, the only perspective that matters is the Lord's, and he is displeased. And so we come to the confrontation, number five. Let's read together in verse one of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. If this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So David is incensed at this account, saying this rich man should die and restore the lamb fourfold, which was the penalty under the law of Moses. See, now he knows the law. He can quote it perfectly when it doesn't apply to him. There's an interesting literary device the author uses. I just want you to listen. Just look at me and listen to this. I'm going to read some phrases that occur sequentially in the previous chapter. David sent Joab and his servants. David sent and inquired about the woman. David sent messengers and took her. David sent word to Joab. David sent the letter by the hand of Uriah. David sent and brought her into his house, and she became his wife. Now, chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. We can read chapter 11 pretty quickly, but we're probably talking nine months from David's adultery to Nathan's confrontation, who was sent by God to confront him. We'll never know what would have happened if God had not sent Nathan. You know, I would say it's remarkable that David could be so blinded to his own sin as he's hearing the story about the rich man to not recognize the obvious parallel in his own behavior, to be outraged at someone else while completely incapable of seeing the hypocrisy, I would say that's remarkable, but I've seen too much of the deceptive power of sin, both in my own heart and tragically in the hearts of others. So praise God for his gracious initiative to pursue us in the midst of our blinding sin. And praise God for the Nathans of the world that he uses to do so. Now, as, as is usually the case with grievous sins like this, 
consequences follow. And Nathan now describes those to David, number six in your outline, continuing in, in, uh, starting in verse 10. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. You have done this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, this child who is born to you shall die. As I pointed out, when David heard Nathan's story about the ewe lamb, he said the rich man should pay it back fourfold, which is what the law required. Scholars have noted David had four sons who would now die in his lifetime. A fourfold tragedy starting with his first child with Bathsheba. Before we look at David's confession, let's just note again that very often, Even if you're forgiven of sin, consequences follow. And these words from Nathan are fulfilled during the rest of David's reign. Horrific civil war within his own family, as we'll see in coming weeks. Absalom sleeping with David's concubines in broad daylight before all Israel. Tragedy after tragedy, David's family would never be the same. The main point here is this. When sin enters your mind, count the cost. You may be forgiven, but consequences remain. And and in many cases, like this one, the consequences are so severe, they will fundamentally alter the rest of your life and the lives of those you love. That's why it's very often the case that Despite forgiveness, genuine forgiveness, restoration of relationships or returning to circumstances the way it was before, not possible. Cannot happen in this life in many cases. Now let's look at David's confession and contrition, number seven. He confesses as we just read in verse 13. Now let's read in verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David And he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, for nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. Well, when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. Listen to this. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house and when asked, they set food Before him, and he ate. 
Then his servant said to him, what is this thing you've done? You, You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me. The child may live. But now that the child is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. We see David's genuine repentance here. He's in it for the Lord, not for what he can get from the Lord. That's true repentance. David pleads with the Lord to remove a consequence for his sin. The Lord says no. He accepts the Lord's answer, and he worships the Lord. Okay, you know, a lot of times you see people really sorry, right, for what they did, begging for forgiveness, but what they really want is restoration to the way things were before their sin, like drop the charges. Okay, and sometimes that doesn't happen. And when it doesn't, you get a strong indicator if their repentance was genuine. When they find out you're not going to let them off the hook for the consequences, it, become, it can become apparent very quickly. They were not that sorry after all. It was transactional. Like, I'm really trying to show you how sorry I am so that you drop the charges. Not David. He loves the Lord. He knows the Lord. He knows his gracious and mercy are profound. So who knows? I'm pleading with him. But when he finds out the consequences are unchanged, he doesn't throw up his hands and go home. He knows he deserves far worse. He accepts the consequences and he worships the Lord. That's true repentance, which leads to the comfort of forgiveness. Number eight, just going to read a couple verses at the end here. Uh, Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and they called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. I I, I love this. We see evidence here of the Lord's forgiveness of David's sin. Solomon was born, the Lord loved him, and he will be instrumental in the future of this promised kingdom. Furthermore, the rest of chapter 12 summarizes the victory over the Ammonites, which, remember, is the war that sort of bookends this story. David is crowned with the defeated king's gold. The people of Ammon are subjugated. David returns to Jerusalem. Again, David deserved to die according to God's law. He understood that. All of this demonstrates God's unmerited favor and mercy on David and his forgiveness of David's sins. Now, with the remainder of our time, I want to think a little more deeply about a few areas of application. The first one is this Beware of Bathsheba blaming. Nathan's parable about the ewe lamb doesn't make any sense if Bathsheba bears blame. David, who had everything, took the wife, the ewe lamb, of Uriah, who had little. David greatly sinned. Now listen carefully. Bathsheba's beauty did not cause David to sin. Bathsheba's lack of clothing did not cause David to sin. Now David doesn't blame Bathsheba, but some men have been trying to ever since in more ways than one. It's human nature to blame someone else for your sin. We see this in the very beginning in the garden, don't we? Adam blaming Eve, really blaming God. It's this woman you put here with me. That's why I sin. I'm going to touch on a very sensitive topic, and I just, so I want to be really clear up front. 
There is a place for teaching modesty in dress with girls and with women. Okay, don't hear me say otherwise. That's appropriate. If consistently applied, that's right. That's biblical to teach them. It's important. Having said that, as it relates to addressing a man's struggle or lust in a specific woman, dealing with her dress is a superficial reaction, and it is dangerous for a number of reasons that I'll mention momentarily. Unfortunately, in the last 30 years or so, a Christian purity culture has developed, and some of it is positive, okay? But much of it has been destructive, and some have left the faith, frankly, because of its abuse and error. Women and girls can be told that men are so powerless to control their lust that everything rests on the way they dress. We see this in extreme form, certain schools of hyper-conservative Islam, right, where the woman showing more flesh than between the eyebrow and the cheekbone can be blamed for a man's lust. Somehow we know that's wrong. But the underlying principle can sometimes be rewarded in certain Christian contexts. A woman can be told explicitly or implicitly the way she's dressing is the cause of a man's struggle with lust, as if there's nothing a man can do and it's her problem to fix. And that is a dangerous perversion on multiple levels. First, because we're not addressing the root issue in the man's heart. That should be the focus. But worse, it's dangerous to women, and, and, and especially younger girls. This can be very confusing. It's well documented that in subcultures like this, girls can begin to despise their own anatomy. They can start to hate their own bodies because how could something be beautiful or good if it's the cause of so much evil to my brothers and the Lord whom I love? That's a perversion. As we'll consider in the next point, David had a lust issue that he'd been feeding in his heart for many years. He looked at Bathsheba, he did not turn away, fixed his gaze on her, lusted after her, and the cause of that sin was in David's heart. The cause of that sin was not Bathsheba's beauty. The cause of that sin was not the way she dressed. Men, if you struggle with lust, you're not alone. There is a reason it's been called every man's battle. But let's deal with the root issue in your heart. Please talk to one of us pastors. We have good resources for you. Talk to another brother regularly for accountability. Above all, talk to the Lord and take responsibility for your sin. Confess it, repent. Seek strength from him. Seek help from others. Okay? Do all those things. But do not blame a woman for your sin. And that leads to the second point. Examine your life, confessing sin early and often. From one perspective, you might say, wow, David fell quickly. But that would be to ignore what's been happening in his heart. David had a problem. And the multiplication of wives, which started much earlier, was a direct violation of Deuteronomy 17, God's law for kings. Furthermore, Back in chapter 5, we read that David took more concubines and wives. Now, scholars note there, it's unusual for concubines to be mentioned first, indicating the author's making a point. This is not okay. Okay, now all this is foreign to us, I know, in our society. But just note historically at this time, uh, 
wives in the ancient world, there, sometimes there was situations with political treaties and things like that. But concubines were a different story. David had a problem with lust, and that sin was unchecked and growing. And in today's story, we see that lust mixed with power and control and idleness. And the result is seeing a beautiful woman and taking her and then murdering her husband. This was a gradual, unchecked sin that had been festering in the heart of David for some time. C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, which is his fictional book about fictional conversations between devils and demons, okay, as they're trying to get people to sin. Listen to an excerpt. This is really insightful. This is a demon speaking to a devil kind of thing. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, end quote. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very clear, isn't he, that all these sins are on a spectrum. Anger is on the spectrum of murder. Okay? It comes from the same place in the heart. Lust on the spectrum of adultery. Listen, if this can happen to King David, it can happen to me. And it can happen to you. Take heed lest ye fall. As Chuck Swindoll says, keep short accounts with God. Examine yourself. Make frequent corrections, frequent confessions, frequent repentance. If you see a sin in your heart you think is small, don't be deceived. Confess it right away. Ask the Lord for cleansing and strength to obey. Ongoing, unconfessed, unrepentant sin will start to destroy your communion with God and blind you to further sin, just like we saw with David. Finally, receive rebuke, repent, receive mercy. Sin is deceptive and it blinds us. We need to listen to others who have the courage to confront us with our own sin. That's not easy to do, is it? It's not easy to be a Nathan, especially the person, when the person you're confronting is more powerful. Okay, and we never know from whom the rebuke might come and in what form. But we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and receive the rebukes from the Nathans in our own life. The Lord uses other people when we're blinded, so we need to listen. A few years ago, uh, my friend Bentley told me a, a highly impactful story about his time at Denver Seminary. One of the most impactful moments for him, he told me, in all of seminary, was in a class where one of the older professors, uh, who was also in church ministry, referenced this story of Nathan confronting David with his sin. And this instructor was saying that as a young man in ministry, he always envisioned Nathan confronting David this way. You're the man! Sort of the zinger, right, after David's outrage at Nathan's story. But he said, as he's gotten older, and I think... Uh, I'll just insert that anyone who's been in ministry, anyone that has been a Christian for, for, for a long period of time, you've seen the absolute devastating impact of sin 
in people's lives, people you love. How painful it is when someone is blinded by their own sin, causing so much destruction to themselves and to those they love. And this professor said, I now view that scene much differently than when I was younger. And Nathan's response to David, more like this. You're the man. You are the man in the story. Don't you see what you've done? Boy, if you have been in situations like that, then you know it is miserable to witness someone's blindness to their own sin's destruction. And blessed are those who mourn about that. Blessed are you, brother, sister, when the Lord uses you to be a Nathan in someone's life. Well, by God's grace, David received this rebuke. His eyes were opened. His stubbornness and blindness were exposed to him. He was disarmed, emptied of pride. He was broken, and he repented. And we see his repentant heart not only here, but as Dan referenced earlier in Psalm 51, which he penned in this moment. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, let's face it. David sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against Joab, against his servants, in a sense against everyone in his kingdom. But he understands in this moment all sin is ultimately against his God, against his Lord, against his Savior. And he's broken. He hates it. He says, my sin is ever before me. I'm no longer blinded to it. Now it's all I can see. And he pleads to God for mercy. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out these disgusting iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Please renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I want that again. That joy of walking and talking with my Savior. My communion with you has been broken because of my sin. Please restore to me that joy. And God graciously does so. I hope you can see, friend, fellow sinner, that as horrible and disappointing as this story is about King David, there is great hope for every single one of us because of what he went through. Do you see that? Do you see that no one, no one, has descended too deep into sin that they cannot be saved, that they cannot be restored to that joy. But you need to listen to rebuke 
You need to respond. You need to agree that you've sinned against God and be broken by that, miserably so. You need to understand that you rightfully deserve his full measure of justice and wrath. That would be just that you get that. And only by his mercy can you be forgiven. And you can be. And we know now what David did not know then. David knew the character of God in a way that's special for sure. And David believed his promises. But David did not know how that forgiveness was ultimately achieved. How could God be just and holy and at the same time forgive my sin? How? That answer came a thousand years later through the cross of his great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you turn to him today? for mercy, for cleansing, for forgiveness, and for the unspeakable joy of his salvation. Please stand as we close. Our Father, you are such a merciful Savior. I want to pray here, Father, for those who are struggling with sin, and and, and we all are to some degree, Maybe there's a sin that people have been harboring, someone's been harboring that they think is small. Remove the blinders, Father. Have mercy for them to see the severity of what it's doing to their communion with you. And for greater sins, Lord, give people the the wisdom and understanding to know that they they can be forgiven. Your mercy is so profound to the cross of Christ. And they can have that if they just repent, as if, if they just agree with the severity of that sin to experience the severity of your mercy. You're such a great Savior. We love you, Jesus. Amen.